the cross is the infinite compassion, mercy, care, tenderness of God that envelops every one of us. And we can offer that as a parent to our children. I think that's where it really begins. Uh, but we can only offer that when we know it ourselves. What could loving your neighbor actually look like? Welcome to the Journey with Care podcast, your online community of sojourners who are growing more loving in neighborhoods all across Canada. We'll navigate into hot topics about child welfare, faith, and reconciliation. Be challenged with real-life stories and honest conversations that will inspire you to love others well. We're glad you've joined us on this Journey with Care. Today is an awesome day because with me here in my camper in the 1964 Shasta in our podcast studio, I have our very own Michael Hrennick from Toronto here in Winnipeg. So welcome to Winnipeg and welcome onto the podcast, Michael. What a pleasure to have you here. Oh, thank you, Wendy. It's just so excited. We've gone back a couple of years and our conversations go far longer than this episode could ever cover. But I'm going to dive right in, Michael. And I've just really appreciated uh, and connected with your story and the things that you bring onto our Canadian landscape. I just thought so many people need to know who you are and the things that you carry deep within your heart. You are a theologian. You're a psychologist. You, I should call you Dr. Michael. Uh, the doc is in the house. You have a wealth of experience within the the whole church. You've been Catholicizing me, helping me understand Catholics. And and I, we've had this great exchange. Welcome to the podcast. Oh, thank you. It's an honor to be here. So tell me a little bit about yourself. I, I know a little bit of what we're doing together as Care Impact with the Catholic Diocese in Hamilton, but I want to go back deeper. As a younger child, how did you get to this place of richness and the things that you carry? Where did that start from? Oh, I, I would love to. I mean, being here in Winnipeg is is really helpful for that because I'm back in my hometown. I was born here in 1962 and born in a, a nice middle-class Ukrainian Catholic family. I'm third-generation Ukrainian. So I, I, I grew up in the Ukrainian community and the Ukrainian culture. My grandfathers were first-generation Canadians. In other words, they, they came from the old country. So we were second-generation kids growing up. Well, first of all, here in, in Winnipeg, my father is now retired, but was a doctor. And we traveled quite a bit because of his training. We were in the United States for a number of years, but we ended up back here in, in 1969. And I did all my schooling here. And very important for me were my grandparents, especially my grandmothers. So when I think about my own roots and how I became who I am today, I think of the influence of my grandparents because my parents, as much as they loved us and we loved them, were very busy young professionals and we were cared for a lot by our grandparents and aunts and uncles. So I had a wonderful, in that sense, a wonderful upbringing. And my grandmothers were really my first teachers in the faith. My maternal grandmother, we call her Baba, Baba Chishin. She was the archetypal Ukrainian Baba. But both my, my, my maternal and paternal grandmothers were incredible women, women of profound faith and profound love. And I think uh, very devoted, both of them, to the church, praying people. 
And I just remember as a little kid, you know, we would go to Baba's house on Friday nights after Ukrainian dancing. And we, my parents were very clever that way. They'd dump us off grandmother's at grandma's house. And we'd always have Friday nights with Baba. We'd pray with her at the end of the day. And, and sometimes Angela, my sister, and I would be sitting in bed, we're small, five, five, six years old, and watching Baba do her rosary at the end of the day and the red candle, votive light, and thinking, wow, there's something really powerful going on here. Like, you kind of absorb something from your grand, your grandmother's uh, devotion to Jesus, and I think we we both absorb something very deep from both our grandmothers. Uh, I, I consider them my first theological teachers, and uh, the love. I it was just it was just a life filled with love. Uh, we always knew, you know, from the point of view of attachment theory. I think both Angela and I had deep, uh, strong attachments to our grandparents. Another really signal event in my growth was that my parents split up when I was 13 years old, and that was the source of a lot of suffering and breakage in my life. And I had to, I had to grow up pretty fast. And as loving as my my extended family was, we had to go through kind of a family breakdown, and that really challenged me to go deep in myself and my faith and find the resources and the strength to continue. So that's where that's where actually where my faith development really began was was coping with that experience. Tell me a little bit more about that faith encounter. Was it kind of a ongoing process of development where you came to that personal faith encounter or was it through the hardship? Was it at a specific part in the journey where you had to make some choices? What did that look like? Because I see you today as somebody that loves God and that you can't fake that. There's a genuine, deep compassion. We're going to get into that. But at what point, what did that look like as a younger person? Well, I mean, I would skip a little bit. I, I began to read the Bible, um, which was not something you do a lot in the Ukrainian Catholic Church, um, which is a whole other story. Mennonites but... neither. Let's go there. <laughs> it was, it was, a, it was a, when I think back, I was 15, 16 years old. I was in high school and I started opening the Bible and reading the Gospels. And I didn't even know why, just to kind of get a deeper sense of God's presence and who Jesus was for me personally. And then when I graduated from high school here in Winnipeg at Kelvin, uh, went off to Toronto, and I had a very unique experience. I was uh, welcomed uh, to live in a house of formation for redemptorist priests. So th this is a Catholic religious order. We were raised, in a sense, our, our home parish, our redemptorist priests, and they had a house of formation, which is essentially uh, for training young seminarians into the priesthood. And I wasn't really considering that, but the leader of that program, who was a dear mentor and friend of our family, said, Father Russ, said, come and live with us because you're going to be in university and we have lots of space. And even though you're not a seminarian, we'd love to have you live with us. And Father Russ probably was the most important guy in my life. He was my, well, somebody I would cons consider my spiritual father, somebody who I'd known from the age of seven who was our parish priest, and then he became the director of this, this house of formation. And I spent two years at Redeemer House. That was what it was called. And I was 17, and Father Russ really taught us the meaning of prayer and the meaning of liturgy the, and the meaning of worship. And I remember as a 17-year-old kid, really, my first year of university, 
in Toronto uh, studying religion. And uh, after dinner, you know, Father Russ would say, come, I'd like to share something with you that I've been reading about. And I would go to his office and he would be reading from the saints or he'd be reading from the mystics or he'd be reading his favorite spiritual author. These were, this was in the late seventies, early eighties. And he would be reading this incredible, deep, profound spiritual literature. And he was so excited about this stuff. And he'd, he'd say, isn't that amazing? You know, what Meister Eckhart is saying about the, the divinization of the soul. And he'd look at me and he'd say, isn't that amazing? And I was like, yeah, that is amazing. But what was more amazing was that he wanted to share that with me, a, a young man, and that he he saw something in me and he believed in me. He believed that I was somebody who he could share these pearls of wisdom, spiritual wisdom with at the age of 17. And I never forgot that because the experience of somebody who's your elder, who looks at you with love. I always think of that line in the Gospel of Mark with the rich young man where Jesus looks at him with love. And Father Russ had that look of love and he believed in me and I began to believe in myself. And what a great encouragement though too, right? I see that being lived out. I've never met Father Russ, but I see you emulate that in even the way that you have received care impact in our team and and the rich conversations, you do that with me. You say, come look at this article, Wendy. L read what this this has to say. And, and it's just exposing me to so much more. And I see you light up when we, we meet about different things that you are imparting on other people. With that, I want to ask you the question. We're right now in a series of what gets you up in the morning. Yeah. What gets you up in the morning? Well, God, I... I really, and I mean that, I open my eyes in the morning and the first thing I want to do is enter into a time of silent prayer. Um, I'm, a, I'm a contemplative at heart. I love to rest in what I call the big love. And I love to start my day with some deep spiritual reading just to sort of dispose me. There's this hunger in my heart and my soul for an experience of God in the morning. It's sort of like some people are looking for coffee or for cereal or for orange juice. I'm looking for that experience of God and peace and joy in my heart. So I love getting up and just, you know, reading Henry Nowen or reading um, somebody who really awakens my heart and my soul, and then just resting in that peace and resting in that joy. It's kind of hard to describe. I remember one of the people on a retreat um, I was leading is a wonderful young youth minister from uh, Texas. And he said, oh yeah, I call that my DQT. And I said, oh, what's the DQT? That's my daily quiet time. And my daily tan, he says, I call my daily tan. And I thought, oh, Brent, that's it. That's it. It's I, I love getting up and having my daily tan, except for me, it's more like my daily 30 or 40. And just kind of starting my day with God and resting in the big love, and then getting into what I call the big flow, which is the spirit you know, leading and guiding. And I'm listening and I'm saying, okay, God, what do you want from me today? How do you want to lead me? How do you want to, oh, today you're meeting with Wendy. Oh, that's right. Oh, that's going to be so wonderful. So those kinds of things. And, and then, you know, it's like, for me, it's that experience of being named. It's a little like what I was sharing about Father Russ, feeling like you're resting in the, in the big love and you're being named as beloved and you're being claimed as beloved and you're you're starting your day in that sense of God's presence and God's power. I mean, then the miracles begin. 
Yeah. And there is that word. I was wondering how many minutes into the episode it would take because every conversation you and I have had has the word beloved in. We are the beloved. And that is actually a premise to your whole thesis when you did your doctorate, right? Yeah. Tell me a little bit more of beloved because your eyes just lit up when I I highlighted that word because that's your thing. (laughs) That's my thing. That's my word. Yeah, it's true. So that word, oh my goodness, that goes back so far um, in many ways, back to Redeemer House. Again, coming out of some really deep, difficult years coping with family stuff and finally getting to the peace and the joy of Redeemer House. As a 17-year-old kid, I I began to dive into this reading and Bible and, and prayer and Father Russ's spiritual wisdom and guidance. And I remember having some profound experiences in prayer of feeling enveloped in God's love um, in a way that I even I hadn't felt at a human level with my my family, even my grandmothers and grandparents. But there was this sense of God's presence that was so immediate. And then later, I discovered Henry Nouwen. I think I started reading Henry Nouwen's work around the age of 19. Didn't you used to lead the Henry Nouwen Society in Canada? Yes, I eventually became the first, the inaugural director of the Henry Nouwen Society of Canada, the United States, but that was about 30 years later. But I remember reading Henry's work the first time. There was something called The Way of the Heart, which was uh, desert spirituality and and, uh, contemporary ministry. But there was something about the way that Henry was describing God and his experience of God And then eventually, Henry began to write about his own experience of being named as God's beloved. And I thought, that's it. That really names my experience of God. And my my own relationship with God was knowing myself as God's beloved. And this, of course, is in the in obviously in the Synoptic Gospels. You know, in all of the three Synoptic Gospels, we hear the baptism of Jesus. Uh, we read about his baptism and his experience at the Jordan. When John, his cousin, baptizes him, he hears a voice coming from on high, and there's the descent of the Holy Spirit anointing him, and he hears himself being named by God, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And I had this feeling like, yeah, that's it. That's the core of the Christian experience. In other words, Jesus has you know what some people might call this experience of enlightenment, where he comes to know himself as the beloved son in whom God takes delight. And I said, that really, I, not just, I didn't just feel it. I mean, I, I experienced that at Redeemer House and then later in other retreat experiences, this deepening sense that God was naming me and claiming me as the beloved son. And that that was really the experience that God wanted for all of his children. So talk to me as a mom going through a really hard time or a Christian going through a desert feeling of their soul or a youth aging out of care or you name it. Talk to everyday people. What does it mean that they are beloved? That I am beloved. What does that actually mean to me today? Well, I think of the people that I care for in my work as a psychotherapist and as a spiritual care practitioner at the agency where I work. And what I want for them and what I want for them to experience 
is a sense of, first of all, I think a connection to a human being that sees them in their beauty and their belovedness and meets them and encounters them that way. And that might be me uh, at that particular moment. So if there's a mom, I have a case right now of a mom who's struggling with some court decisions around her, her kids. And I was, you know, I was just thinking of her the other day and how there's nobody in her life, uh, you know, very often in our, our agency cases, there's very little support. There's no wraparound at all. And what I want for her and when I, when I meet her is for me to see her in her beauty and to delight in her and for her to know at some level that at least one human being cares and sees her in her beauty and her belovedness. And I don't use that language, but it just in the way that I meet her, I want her to have that experience in, in our encounter. I want her to have other people around her who see her and support her not just in the practical sense, but in her identity, who believe in her, who who help her to awaken to her her identity as somebody who's worthy of love. And of course, in, in our, some of our families, that's very challenging because a lot of them have experienced the opposite, even in my psychotherapy practice. I would say the core issue in anyone's life is the question of, whether they've come to know their own beauty, their own self-worth, their own, what I would call enoughness. Because mm. so many people I find are suffering with shame and guilt and a sense of not being enough, not being worthy. And so what I'm trying to do as a therapist or a spiritual care person is to offer that. And you and I've talked about this, Wendy, we, we want people around them with people who really see them and want to support them in not just in the practical sense, but in their core identity. And not in a, in a charity case, like we feel sorry for, but my goodness, this mom is made in the image of God. It's kind of that back to that Matthew 25, 35. When did we see you hungry? When did we see you naked? When did we see you incarcerated? Uh, but seeing Jesus within them, made in the image of Christ. Yep. Wow. The cross is an equalizer. Oh, Yeah. Yeah, I mean, really, for me in this context, the cross is the infinite compassion, mercy, care, tenderness of God that envelops every one of us. And again, we can we can offer that as a parent to our children. I think that's where it really begins. Uh, but we can only offer that when we know it ourselves. I remember in Larsh, we used to talk about the meaning of love, and I haven't even spoken yet about Larsh, but... Later in my life, after my undergraduate years, I ended up in the communities of L'Arche caring for people with disability. I was inspired by the witness of Jean Vanier and Henry Nouwen. And I learned so much in my care for people with disabilities about the meaning of the beloved because many of our folks in L'Arche communities here in Winnipeg and elsewhere in the world grew up in homes where or institutions where they didn't know or experience themselves as beloved that they'd experienced a lot of rejection and abandonment and suffering in their lives. And the therapy of L'Arche, as we articulated it in the 90s and 2000s, was to awaken the, the sense of their beauty, to reveal the beauty of another person to them. That's the meaning of love. And to offer them a, a sense of who they are in their dignity, 
in their beauty, in their createdness, in the image and likeness of God. So that sounds very theological, but what it means is just to go back to that early experience I was describing with Father Russ, I see you, I hear you, I delight in you, I I delight in you. And I often talk about my work as a therapist. I say, well, my secret sauce is really simple. I can sum it up in one word, delight. Mm. If I can sit in front of another person and delight in them, they begin to feel it. I learned that in L'Arche. I learned that in my own experience of being delighted in by Father Russ and by my grandparents and by my friends and family later in my life. So I think that whole Matthew 3.16, the baptism of Jesus, contains, I think, the power of God's love to awaken us in our beauty. And it's this power of delight. I love that. It's so hope-filled. And then there's this other part of many of us will be able to identify this with this focus on sin and depravity of man, that we are sinners falling short of the glory of God. There's a lot of Bible to to back that up. We're not making things up. But a lot of the emphasis is on our shortcomings and we are doomed without God. That doesn't mean that some of those things are not true because they're biblical. Yeah. But maybe our focus, because I just talked to somebody recently, this was an Indigenous brother of mine, and he said, we as Indigenous people were already oppressed, feeling less than, feeling that we weren't measuring up. And then the church told me that God feels that way as well. As a theologian, how do you work with that tension of true but? Oh, I love this question because it goes to the very heart of my own sense of vocation. You know, what gets me up in the morning now, other than just wanting to experience God's love, is is articulate it. And just to weave back into my own story, I mean, after years of uh, study, I decided that I wanted to become a theologian. And I ended up studying at Emory University in Atlanta in the whole area of faith development and spiritual transformation trying to articulate what I felt and what I experienced in a theological way. So to answer or respond to your question, I would say that historically, the church has tended to emphasize, whether it's the Catholic, the Orthodox, the mainline Protestant, the evangelical church, doesn't matter, tends to emphasize our our sinfulness and our brokenness. I understand why that is, but I think in some ways we often start with the wrong starting point. We know, we, I don't think we need to be or should be starting with our sinfulness. I think we need to be starting with our blessedness, that we, you know, as some theologians would call it, original blessing, not original sin, and saying you were created in the image and likeness of God as a beautiful gift and a blessing to creation, and you have been named and claimed as God's beloved. And there is, yes, there is something in us that you might want to call original sin. It's a mystery, and I honor that. There is something in us that says no, mm-hmm. that says, I don't think so. I think maybe my neighbor, but not me. For some reason, there's a resistance to love that says, I'm not worthy of that love, or I don't believe it, or I don't trust it. Uh, and I've never fully understood how or why there is a kind of innate, even in the most loved child, that I've, some of the most loved, well-loved people, 
there's a kind of, well, there's a little bit of doubt. Like, I'm not sure that I really am beautiful and beloved. So I I might need a little help with that. Okay, I can give you some help with that. But that comes second, right? What comes first is you are, uh, it's the words of of the Father in, in the baptism of Jesus. You are my beloved daughter or son in whom I take delight. Somebody once said, I thought uh, this was brilliant, you know, Jesus was the first one to believe it. (laughs) (laughs) And this began a revolution in human consciousness. It wasn't just in Israel and the the Jewish people, but the notion that God is love and that we are named and claimed as God's beloved, that was the kernel of Christianity. And if you didn't get that, then you really weren't fully anointed and baptized yet. If you weren't able to internalize that, St. Simeon, the great theologian of of the Orthodox uh, tradition, if you haven't had that experience of the Spirit naming you and claiming you as God's beloved, you haven't really been fully baptized. You haven't realized it in a sense. So I think we, we got off on the wrong track with the emphasis on sin and said, well, you're a sinner, but God kind of loves you anyway if you repent. That kind of theology, I think, already sets up a bit of a barrier to people. It's like, um, well, so then I have to perform or produce or I have to earn God's love. Now you're getting me on my soapbox of (laughs) attachment theory. (laughs) Attachment theory with the church, our God attachment and, and some of the attachment issues that we have. If it doesn't come from a secure attachment of belovedness. We are preoccupied or we're dismissive or we're, you know, ambivalent. And it plays out in the decisions we make as believers. Yeah. So let me ask you, Michael, uh, to wrap things up. We're going to keep talking. I know it. But to, to wrap things up for our listeners, what keeps you up at night? What are the things that you are living and striving for and are inspired by, but it's a hope unrealized yet? What, what are the things that keep you up at night? I'm glad you asked it that way because, you know, sometimes people ask that question of what keeps you up at night more in terms of worry. And I I, I was thinking, I don't really worry about much at the end of the day because I know that the big love has everything. You know, I've shared that expression with you. We're covered by the big love insurance plan. So, you know, God has the whole world in God's hands. I don't really worry too much. I don't stay up at night worrying. But I do stay up at night wondering, and this is where I love your work. How do we spread that message of belovedness into the church, first of all, but into the community? How do we reach other people with this? I mean, that was our call. The early church was all about announcing the good news of our belovedness. I mean, that is the good news. And how do we demonstrate that? How do we realize that? And part of what has inspired me about you and the work of Care Impact is that I'm seeing a pathway uh, and I'm wondering, how do we realize the full potential of that pathway to communicate God's love into the neighborhood, into the world? For example, in Toronto, I mean, obviously we're dealing, as with here in Winnipeg, serious problems of homelessness, now violence on the transit system. And, And how do we reach people who do not know their beauty and belovedness? How do we wrap around single moms with kids who are struggling with that kind of sense of you are worthy of love? We want to encircle and enfold you in this love, in this care, in this compassion. The work I do at the agency, I'm thinking, how do we introduce spiritual care 
into child welfare, into the child welfare sector, which has never been really fully done before. How do we reach uh, the workers? Because a lot of my work as a chaplain is in caring for my staff. How do we communicate this message in a way that's intelligible to social workers who are pretty tough people and have to deal with tough situations? So I think I'd like to spend sort of the, the next phase of my life working more in making this message intelligible and accessible to the public and into the community and to the neighborhood, because most of my work has been in, in religious organizations and churches and, and so on. But I really would love to see it move more into sort of the, the public and into the community. Well, I hope God gives you another hundred years because we need more of Michael. Everybody needs more Michael in Canada. And Karen Pact is so grateful for the the warmth, the the intellect and the heart behind what you say, you live out. We wrestle through it together. I'm just wondering, are there any practical or a practical thing that they're that community member? They love Jesus or they're part of this greater community, is there one thing that they can do after listening to this podcast that they can actually go and do to walk down that path? Well, I would say that the most basic level, it's extending love and kindness to another. Let's say, for example, you're a mom or a dad caring for your children. And very often we we can we can forget it's sort of the familiarity breeds a little bit of amnesia and we can forget that the people, the children that we have that we care for are God's gifts to us and need to be seen and heard and met as God's beloved, right? I just really believe that acts of care and kindness, random acts of kindness, the, sometimes the smaller the gesture, the bigger the impact, right? Those gestures of love and kindness, which are so simple, are probably the most powerful expression of God's love in the world. And you don't need to be a Christian or a believer or a follower of Jesus to do that. But those of us who are, I think, are are called by our baptism to do that. I also think, and this is a hard one for Christians in particular, you know, you can't give what you haven't received, right? Very often I'll say, particularly to people in ministry, you want to go and name people and claim people as God's beloved. You want to be able to reveal the beauty of those people to themselves. But the hardest part for, for those of us who are Christians often is seeing it in ourselves, being able to accept our own beauty and the grandeur of our own beauty and belovedness. And so I would say the other thing is to, is to go back to Brent's expression of the daily quiet time. Take 10 minutes with God in the morning and just rest in the big love. Learn how to receive that love so that you can give it. However that works for you, whether it's just opening the Bible and taking some time with the Psalms or the Gospels and just soaking, marinating in that big love for 10 minutes, that will change your life. Absolutely. It will change you. It will change your life, your relationships. It may change your vocation, but we can't offer what we don't have. We can't offer what we haven't received. So I would encourage people just to take that little bit of time at the beginning of the day to learn how to sit, receive, and allow yourself to be enfolded in that big love so that you can go out and, and share it with others. That's solid. That's rich. Yeah, no, that's so good. And one of the things that I've appreciated about getting to know you, Michael, is 
opening my eyes and introducing me to a whole rich way of connecting with God. I've done quiet time with God. I, I continue to try to make time for that in my day. But one of the gifts of the Catholic tradition is the contemplative. And I know it, within it, it grieves my heart. This is what keeps me up at night is the divide among denominations of we think we have the corner on theology, but that's not what I'm hearing from you. As a theologian, you have actually taken those lines apart and just said, let's just get back to the basics. Let's get back to God. And I've just seen so many beautiful examples uh, beyond yourself, but within the Catholic denomination of the Spirit of God is living after. Yes, there are things that need to be worked on, like any denomination, but you bring a richness to that, to my soul. And so for that, I'm forever grateful. And Mm. we serve one God. We do. And we are loved by one God. And so at the end of the day, whether whatever denomination we're part of, I think it's about just experiencing it. It all needs to begin with the experience of one's belovedness by God. And that's open and available to anyone of any particular denomination. Yes, Catholics and Orthodox seem to have more of that in their tradition, what I would call the mystical dimension of that in prayer and worship. But I think in in over the 30 years that I've been in ministry, actually 40, I've seen it beginning to sort of spread into the mainline and the evangelical churches, the sense of the contemplative dimension of the gospel and the need to really experience it directly. I think faith is important, but faith based on experience, not blind faith, but faith based on the experience of one's belovedness is far more powerful. Yeah. Yeah. And I think there's a lot of unresolved trauma within the denominations that need to be resolved. And when I think of it, it comes down to to this, Michael, you and me sitting, having coffee, we're about to have lunch. And this is reconciliation. This is the gift of reconciliation. It's not hard, right? It's about seeing the belovedness in each other and being able to walk this out. This world is complicated. Wouldn't it be a lot better if we brought our hearts and our prayers and our our, our friendships and our laughter together and journeyed this together? So, Michael, I, I sincerely thank you for being on this journey with us, with Care Impact, for believing in us, working with us through a very big audacious vision to see the whole church connected and equipped to journey well in community. It's not an easy task that God has put on, but I'm so grateful for people like you who cheer us on and are with us and doing the real thing. So thank you, Michael, for coming on the podcast. It's been a joy. Oh, and thank you for having me. It's been a joy to share with you and and to journey with you. Thanks for listening to the Journey with Care podcast, where paths connect over real life stories and honest conversations. We hope you continue to join us on this journey of faith, reconciliation, and loving our neighbor. Journey with Care is an initiative of Care Impacts, a Canadian charity dedicated to connecting and equipping the whole church across Canada to effectively journey in community with children and families in hard places. Learn how Care Impact is transforming the way churches engage child welfare with our Care Portal technology and academy training. To support this podcast or learn more about us, 
go to careimpact.ca or follow us in the show notes. We're so glad you are part of this journey with us as we journey with care, even in the messy. Until next time.